All right, so I'm wondering this morning as we get started, have any of you um, ever seen the angel oak tree outside of Charleston, South Carolina? Yeah? Yeah, you have? You've seen it? You've seen it? Uh, it's technically on John's Island. Um, it's kind of a sight to see when you're in Charleston. And I have a picture of it. It is thought to be, not that one. Can you go back to the beginning for me? <laughs> That's not it. That's not very impressive, is it? I drew that, and I'm just kidding. <laughs> there it is. Hello. It is thought to be between 400 and 500 years old. That's a big gap, but that's still old. <laughs> it is thought to be between 400 and 500 years old. It stands 66 feet tall, measures 28 feet in circumference around the trunk, and produces shade that covers 17,000 square feet. Its longest branch, which it's hard to kind of see what, what's going on when you get closer, <laughs> the longest branch is 187 feet long. It's a big tree. Matt and I had the opportunity to go uh, the spring right before Logan arrived, so longer ago than I even realized, I think 2018. Um, and it was just magnificent. It was amazing to see this. Um, this tree has seen some things. <laughs> this tree has seen some things. Damage from multiple hurricanes, uh, even sort of fights between some land developers and conservation groups in the area that are trying to protect the land around it. Because trees often, I mean, some trees, the nutrient system can go sometimes three to seven times out wider than the drip line of the tree itself. So you think about as the branches come down, the drip line on the edge the roots underneath can extend far beyond the, the, what we see from the canopy at the top. So there's a lot of conservation groups that are trying to protect the land around this tree and its rich nutrient system so that it can endure. In 2013, one of these groups purchased 17 acres of land around the tree in order to conserve it. Um, and that became known as a park, I believe, the Angel Oak Park. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's good became known as the Angel Oak Park. In 2018, it became the vocal point of an Allstate commercial. Maybe you remember this, saluting the strength of the Carolinas following the devastation of Hurricane Florence. Kind of became that symbol of strength and resilience to endure. You could argue that one of the ways it has withstood so many trials and tests of time is its substantial root system that offers it this nourishment and stability. With most trees, the majority of roots go outward along the top 12 to 18 inches of the soil. But something that's unique... What? Okay. Something... Okay. Signs from the back. But something that is unique to oak trees is that they're known to grow their first root down very deep. The white oak especially has one of the deepest, what's called a tap root, which is the first root to grow out of the germinated seed down deep. So then it can, from there, grow the other types of roots, whether it's called, here's my, here's my cartoon, whether it's called heart roots or lateral roots or sinker roots or secondary roots or fine roots to form this network to support the tree's growth and survival. Oaks are unique in that they grow their deepest root first, an anchoring root that can sustain the rest of the development of the tree. I love this image of that anchoring root that needs to go deep first in order to sustain growth in the long run. 
And I think it's similar to the image that Paul gives us in his letter to the Ephesians when he writes to the church and encourages them and prays over them that they may be rooted and grounded in love. It comes from Ephesians 3. And it's a prayer that... I, was kidding, I can't even... It's a prayer that's going to ground us throughout this series. Yeah? I was going to just drop it in there and keep going, but I, yeah, holy humor, my friends. Two weeks, yeah, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm way behind, you're right. But Ephesians is going to be a, a text that we focus on throughout the next couple of weeks as we start this new series called Rooted. But I want to stop for just a second and give us a little bit more sort of um, context of where we are in ancient Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, this letter written to the church there, the people that would live in Ephesus, called then Ephesians. Ephesus itself in the ancient world was a huge city. It was an epicenter of worship for Greek and Roman gods. And we can read about Paul going there in his missionary journeys in Acts chapter 19. And he stayed with them in Ephesus for two years, teaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues among the Greeks and Gentiles, and planting the church there in Ephesus. You can see kind of where it is in relation to down here in the bottom right-hand corner, you see Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Nazareth. Um, so this was one of uh, part of the Asia Minor when he was going on his missionary journeys, Colossae, Galatia, and there's Ephesus. So it was this epicenter of worship for Greek and Roman gods. This letter then, he writes several years after the church has been planted, after he has been imprisoned by Rome, and the letter itself only has six chapters, and it's really sort of split up into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 cover the gospel message, reminding them of what he taught them. You are saved by grace through faith. And then chapters 4 through 6 outline how then they should be responding to this truth and living their lives as followers of Jesus Christ. It's more of the application piece in, verse, in chapters 4 through 6. I mean, he spends the whole first half reminding them of this truth of the gospel. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God. In Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. There has become now one family between Jews and Gentiles. In that familiar passage, you might know about the walls of his hostility have been torn down, uh, making in them uh, one dwelling place, one family brought together in Christ. Through him, we all have access in one spirit to the Father. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I mean, go back and read chapters 2 and 3. You've, you've heard it before. But to see it all together as he builds is just a beautiful thing. Telling them, remember who you are in Christ. No longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints. Members of the household of God being built together into this new dwelling place, he says. A new temple. Not built by hands. Not built by human hands, but in a gathering of people. Like sort of these two images of a dwelling place together, but then also a body. He uses that image as well, which we see elsewhere. The body of Christ. But in that dwelling place being built together as a temple, who is the cornerstone? Christ with Christ as the cornerstone. So after all that buildup in the first half, he ends 
chapter 3 with this prayer over them, encouraging them, do not lose heart. Though I am suffering, it will be for the glory of God. It'll be for your glory. Do not lose heart. So I'm going to read that prayer now. This is the end of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge." that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a pretty powerful prayer. There's another pastor colleague I heard uh, teach on this scripture just a few weeks ago, uh, and he said that Paul is saying that we should be rooted and grounded in right doctrine. Right? Oh, rooted and grounded in your favorite online preacher. (laughs) Rooted and grounded in money. In your own spirit of self-sufficiency that you can get it done on your own. No. We should be rooted and grounded in love. That being rooted and grounded in love. Read that part again. We may have strength through the power of the Spirit with all the saints to understand and to know the love of Christ. To understand the depth of God's love, which he says surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This image of people being brought together, knit together into a new family to become a dwelling place of the almighty creator of the earth. A new temple that through Christ and being rooted and grounded in love together, you would, the fullness of God would be poured out upon us pretty incredible. Through love, he says, we can have these roots that grow down deep in our hearts and our identity. He's talking about to the core of who we are. And going with this image of the angel oak that has stuck with me, we can develop this vast root system for nourishment and watering that we may withstand the external winds and storms that come. Not because we're standing on our own strength, on our own wisdom, or our own power, on our own resource, on our own bright ideas, but on the power of Christ and his love. Seems like a very fitting message for us right now as we stand in a gymnasium, as Daryl said, that we're not familiar with. I had to laugh at the irony of a series that I planned on the Wednesday morning of the storm that was called Rooted. And the next thing I know, less than five hours later, we are being uprooted. (laughs) So it felt. But we're not being uprooted from anything. (laughs) Only relocated. Because the gathering of believers isn't bound by a certain place at a certain address among certain four walls. It's the people of God gathering together and being rooted in Christ's love. 
This prayer that he prays at the end of chapter 3 follows right into the beginning of chapter 4 where he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father in all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's this sense that is, that is only possible. I don't know if you remember this passage, but we had a teaching series on that several summers ago of what it meant to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, eager to maintain unity and humility and patience and bearing with one another in love. What does that look like for a community of faith? We talked a lot about that several summers ago. But putting it together with this prayer for Paul that those people might be rooted in God's love, there's a sense in which all of these things and these applicable sort of instructions that he's about to give them, they are only possible if first you remember your identity, no longer strangers and aliens, but brought together as a new dwelling place, a family rooted in Christ and his love. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, humility and gentleness and patience, none of these things are possible. We probably know that at this point. But there's a sense then of these two things together, this prayer, that's, it's not possible for us to live this way unless first... We are rooted in love. So in this series, we're going to be talking about what are we rooted in? Who are we as a community at our very core? If we do a little investigation, a little study, not just our story and our history, but our roots. What are our core values? What do we value? And are we developing fruit as a congregation that will last? Fruits Fruit that marks us as followers of the way of Jesus. Well, from the beginning of our story as a United Methodist Church plant in 2010, our mission has been to join God in the revolution of transforming lives through teaching and serving. And we live that out, we say, by these core three values. Reveal, resurrect, release. This has been, these have been our core values since the beginning, and they haven't changed. Reveal. What do these mean? We believe that the revolution of God happens as we reveal, help people to see Jesus, as we resurrect, learn to live like Jesus, and as we release. That is to create change in the world through our acts of service and mercy and justice and love. So over the next few weeks, we're going to explore each of these core values a little bit deeper, evaluate, I think, how we are doing, but discover, really, that these are vital signs for spiritual growth for us that lead to health and vitality as a community of faith. These values are our roots that allow us to be rooted and grounded in God's love for the transformation of the world. So first up, we're going to look at Reveal this morning, helping people see Jesus. And if you're to look at our founding documents, which I have, they're really exciting. Yeah. This, these are the four things that we list of what we believe it means when we say we're helping people see Jesus, reveal. 
We're offering experiential worship that makes sacred space to experience and respond to God. That we have a canvas of many styles of worship. Yes, contemporary music, but we sing hymns, our traditional hymns that reveal our theology. We, we speak different creeds, uh, statements of belief. We use um, traditional liturgy at times different art, moments of silence to connect with God and people. We all, at times we have creative arts and technology and videos and, and worship for vivid teaching experience. And that a part of this too, a huge piece of this is hospitality because church is meant to be your home too. What we're talking about with Reveal is really our worship experience. And how we are trying, not trying, but offering opportunities for us to encounter the divine. From the moment we walk in the door, from the moment maybe we get up on Sunday, prepare our hearts to drive here, walk in the door, that we know that we're stepping into the presence of God as we gather together. From the greeters, to the teachers, to the volunteers, to the music, to the teaching, to the acts of response. Acts 17, in fact, is one of the verses that we cite as a part of this value, especially verse 27. This is Acts 17. Paul writing to another church, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul is talking to some leaders there in, in Acts, some Gentiles who are worshiping other Greek gods, and he walks into their temple and he sees all of these statues and all of these graven images and all these different little sea gods they think that they're worshiping. And he walks by one and he sees a statue to an unnamed god. And so he uses that as an opportunity to tell them about the God that he serves, the true God, the one God. And so he says, even some of your poets say these things, that we are indeed his offspring, trying to speak to them in their language to understand the true God that he worships. But verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. We understand that we are all people on this journey seeking after God and his presence. The one living God who made the whole world and everything in it, Lord of heaven and earth and all creation. This is the God we worship. This is the one we seek to experience and encounter each week when we gather so when we, we say that we're helping people see Jesus, it's through our worship experience, revealing the very nature of God from his welcome, from his hospitality, to his love, to his glory, through every aspect of what we do here. Creating space to experience and respond to God's power and presence. That's really a classic pattern of worship in a gathering of corporate worship experience, and then respond. 
when we experience the mighty acts of salvation in Jesus Christ, when those truths are revealed to us, we respond then by offering our praise and our prayers and our gifts and our service. There's a Methodist pastor uh, in talking about passionate spiritual worship says this, through radical hospitality, congregations offer the gracious invitation of Christ, open doors to relationship and foster a sense of belonging. Through passionate worship, God draws people to Christ, many for the first time, deepens understanding and relationships with Christ, and over time transforms lives as disciples grow in the image of Christ. God works through the church to make disciples of Jesus Christ and worship plays an essential part in that process. Worship, the encounter of God, is transformative. It is formative. It can happen in any imaginable setting. As people seek to connect with God and allow God to shape them in their hearts. We believe that God's spirit changes us through worship. Through music and story and prayer and song and communion, we can experience a sense of belonging and support and connection. Worship can open our hearts. It can draw us outside of ourselves to focus beyond ourselves, to surrender to God, to confess our sins, as the song as Daryl led us this morning into the very presence of Christ, that anything not of God would fall away as we stand in his presence and before his altar. He goes on to say, under the influence of weekly worship, people practice looking at the world in a different way and rehearse their unique calling as people of God and their unique identity as the body of Christ. Worship changes people. Changes our worldview. Reminds us of our true identity and empowers us as a means of grace as we experience the spirit to go and to live differently. That's why you know that as we gather, we've never been a church that's been about checking a box of just Sunday morning attendance, that you're here, you're, you're, you're in the seat, so check. But we understand and commit and know that if we're going to be really serious about abiding with Christ and developing this friendship with God, that we would create time and make a priority to actually be in his presence. Corporate worship is formative. It tells our story, reminds us who we are as we encounter God's great love. That's why it's a core value for this church. The first one, reveal, helping people see Jesus. It's a priority for your pastors and your leadership as we prepare, as we pray, as we hopefully lead us into the presence of God. It's not about us, but it's about God and how we are revealing God and his glory and power. And what's interesting is one of the big issues that Paul was addressing in Ephesus, as he was first teaching the gospel there, he was addressing their worship of Greek gods and idols, especially the ones he he refers to being made by hand. As I said before, Ephesus was an epicenter for worship in that region. As many of 25 different gods, but it was Artemis who was considered the city's chief god. An inscription called her the goddess who rules our city. 
She was thought to be the daughter of Zeus, the twin to Apollo. She was depicted as this sort of virgin uh, hunter accompanied by sort of a bow and arrow, this mother goddess for fertility and protection of young children. The temple in Ephesus even was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. They hosted festivals and processions during out the month to celebrate this one God. And the image of Artemis during this festival would have been dressed and adorned and then placed on a cart to travel around the city accompanied by worshipers. And it's in this setting that Paul enters with his message of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. The spirit and the gospel had great success in Ephesus, and many were turning from their idol worship and idol making, and even practices of magic that went along with it. If you go back and you look at Acts chapter 19, there's this scene where a bunch of the new followers of Jesus get together, and they, it says that they confess and divulge of their practices that all of the different things that they had or that the tools that they used even to practice their, their magic, they brought it and they gathered it all together and they burned it as this sign of their confession, of their turning away and their seeking to follow Christ. And it finishes that in verse 20. It says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There was something powerful happening in Ephesus. But as that happened, what do you think? People got mad. Others, people got mad. Worship of Artemis was central to their culture, but also their economy. And there is a scene in Acts chapter 19 where there's a silversmith who's mad. He's been losing business. And he gathers all these people together and workmen of, se of several different trades. And he says to them this, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is no danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and all the world worship. You can hear the fear and the anxiety because worship of the one true God changes people and it opens hearts. It impacts how people see the world and it's disruptive to the culture and the powers and, and the powers that be that sometimes are gripping the world. Reveal, helping people see Jesus. What we do here on Sunday morning is not about any one of us individual. It's not about impressive music or really good coffee or a relatable teaching. It's all coming together to be a part of the dwelling place, being built together as a dwelling place for God that we might be temples of the Holy Spirit. That God's glory being revealed to us, we might be changed by the grace of Jesus Christ poured out and empowering us to go and be the revolution. The revolution of God that never ends, that is still at work in this world, transforming lives through teaching and serving. 
It's a humble thing that we seek to do here as we come to enter his presence together and encounter his glory. That's the power of worship. That's the power of seeking God to speak to us. And so I'm wondering, as we think about what we do here and why it's important and and why we're even doing it, clearly it's a testament that no matter where we go, God, God is with us and gathering us to be his dwelling place. But it's an opportunity to ask, are we welcoming as much as we can be? Are we making space for people of all ages and stages of life to come and encounter the divine? Are we having a good quality in terms of sound and audio that it's not distracting us from the worship of the one true king? Are we taking the time to prepare our own hearts and spirits enough that we know when we encounter, that when we come into this space, we will encounter God? Are we making corporate worship the priority that it needs to be in our own personal lives? Questions that we can ponder and pray about and think about together because we at Revolution value revealing the the glory and love of God, that it's truly one of our first roots, if you will, one of our first roots that as we seek to cultivate and develop, that it grounds us in the love and presence of Christ. We can go nowhere else except Jesus Christ is Lord, and it's him who we worship. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for who you are. And for, as we seek, you promise to meet us where we are. So we thank you that no matter where we might go or where we might move, that you are with us, that your love surrounds us, And God, I I pray that it truly may become that the Spirit is pouring out the power of God on us, that we may truly be able to understand the depth of your love in a way that we know that all things are then possible, in a way that we have freedom to serve and love you, in a way that we have the, the ability through you to develop fruit and fruit that will last of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness give us the courage we need today and in the days to come to make this sacred ground that you have created a priority because it's formative and it defines us and it prepares us prepares us to encounter the world so in need of your love and of your truth and of your mercy. So we love you, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to worship you freely. May we not take it for granted. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray.